Hello, everybody. Welcome to the latest and greatest of Hell's Bells. Uh, I am Heather Drain, and with me is the absolute uber brilliant and uber fantastic Kat Ellinger. Yay! <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, no. Picking we, me up too much, sir. Oh, <laughs> um, just speaking the truth. And we, and also, as you guys can probably tell, we are so excited because uh, tonight we are celebrating. And I must mention that we are recording on the Sabbath because we are very much libertines and we are, in fact, the heathens at the gate. To quote the great Stephen Thrower, uh, saucy and sexy vampires in film. Because this is kind of like our Christmassy episode as well, which is so perfectly festive, I think. Absolutely. I mean, when, you know, I think Christmas could benefit a lot from bloodletting. And... (laughs) And and bats and just all the ghoulish, groovy things about vampirism. Um, so like, so starting it off, like, Cat, what was like, what was your first, like, your first big love of vampires? And and this could be fiction too, just in fiction or film. What was like the first one that really got your attention? Oh my god, people are probably sick of hearing this story, but it was for me. It was Hammer. It was Dracula, Prince of Darkness. I must have been about six or seven, and my uncle, who was a teenager at the time, I have lots of uncles, and some of them are quite close to me in age, um, was supposed to be babysitting a bunch of us, and we were sleeping on my uncle's, another uncle's sofa. So this uncle had that on the TV, and we weren't supposed to be watching it, but of course I was there, (laughs) pretending to be asleep, but kind of watching it. And the only thing that I remembered that really made an impression on me was the scene where Barbara Shelley's trying to get in to the to the house. She sort of appears and she's become a vampire. And I just thought that was fucking horrifying, but I, but also amazing. Diana? Helen, please let me in. It's cold out here. It's so cold. Everything's all right now. I got away from him. Oh, please, Diana, let me in. And I became really obsessed with this notion that Christopher Lee, or Barbara Shelley, but Christopher Lee mainly, was going to come in through my the little grate in my window. Um, he was going to turn into mist, and he was going <laughs> to come in... <laughs> And so I would stuff all this, like, newspaper in there. And then when I saw the film, like, later on, as an adult, I was thinking, there's no scene in this where he, like, fogs through the fucking window. Like, where did that come from? Uh, the, the, the glorious thing that is the child's imagination. Like... It's great, though. But then, because there was so much hammer on BBC Two in the... Would have been very, very early 80s, I guess. So much hammer that showed on BBC Two. They used to do these like horror science fiction double bills. So that was basically like my first exposure to vampires. They were all the hammer ones, which explains a lot about me, I think. <laughs> <laughs> How about you? Oh my goodness. Well, I, I actually I have both a hammer story, but but my first uh vampire love was absolutely Belle Lugosi. And I remember being a little, little 
little girl, like probably like five, maybe four or five. And looking, I would pour through, like my mom would um, check out a lot of like film books from the library and I would just pour through them. Like some of the earliest books I ever remember holding in my my little hands were film books. So it's, yeah, I'm sure this is a shock to nobody, but, uh, but I've ever just seen this glorious like black and white still a bell Lugosi from the 31 version of Dracula and just being like oh just like my mind was blown like just so just an image just full of both just like regalness and beauty but sort of a dark sinister energy and it was just so compelling to me and Bell Lugosi was my first crush I ever had <laughs> Oh, mine was Henry Thomas from E.T. Oh, that's so cute. <laughs> God, what a weirdo I am. Like, <laughs> I'm the weirdo. I feel like the weirdo. No, no. But, but, you know, it's you talk about being a little kid, though, and stuffing the newspaper. <laughs> I actually, and thank God I never got kidnapped or anything because I could just go back in time and slap my little silver nervous. But I, I read a children's book that made had this little illustration of like oh if you leave your window open at night the bats will come in and get you and i thought oh cool i'll be i'll, I'll leave my bedroom window open at night <laughs> so the bats will come in and uh thank god like the no like a freaking creeper didn't like <laughs> crawl in or anything but no, there was like a Halloween where, um, cause my, I was, my mom was pretty much like a single mom until I was about 13. And when I was like, I think it was either seven or eight, she had to work, uh, on Halloween and I didn't get to go trick or treating. Uh, so I stayed home by myself in our tiny little dark house watching, uh, the satanic rites. I believe it was the satanic rites of Dracula on TNT. Uh, and, uh. And that's, uh, I wish it would have been Prince of Darkness because it's really a better movie, but Satanic Rides of Dracula is pretty entertaining and, and kind of bonkers, and it's Christopher Lee, so I love Christopher Lee. In the first moments, every muscle, every fiber will be afire with torment and agony. In the days to come, you will pray for death. But hooray for the 80s latchkey kids as well. Oh. Like I see parents today, they're kind of always on their kids. But like when I was, because my mum would be out at work. So we would just be watching whatever the fuck we wanted. I remember watching a Pete, Pete Walker's The Comeback on TV when I was babysitting my brother. And of course it was like pre-cable days. where So you didn't get it flash on the screen. Someone hadn't bought a TV guide that week, so I had like literally no clue what it was because it start it was it had already started. But that film scared the shit out of me, and I didn't find out what it was till I was an adult. And I would like occasionally just ask random people, "Hey, do you know about this like horror film where like ends up with this like skull bricked up behind a wall?" And, like, people would look at me like I was mad. <laughs> And then seeing it as an adult, because it's almost like a jallo, and it's quite vicious. It's like quite nasty. It's a really nasty sort of stabbing scene in it. I think someone gets like a scythe in the throat or something. Um, and I was just like, why the fuck was I casually <laughs> watching this with my brother? And I saw it on a on a double bill with that next of kin, which is amazing that that's been re-released. Because that was another one I didn't know what it was. And I just remembered this scene where this eye is looking through this door and the woman stabs it with this massive hat pin. And I was just like... (laughs) (laughs) Setting it off. But it was totally like that. And, like, parents of today are just so, like, overprotective. One of the mothers, when my kids were younger, 
from the school wouldn't even let her kids watch Spongebob because she thought it was too violent. And it's just like, fucking hell. Like, back in the day, we were just watching everything. (laughs) We were just, like, watching everything. Parents at work, it's like, oh, I'm just going to watch these 18 rated videos or whatever. Like, my mum was a horror fan anyway, so she's always renting things I shouldn't have been seeing. But the hammer thing was just totally, I think it was to do with the BBC. So it was all that kind of thing and Dr. Fibes and those sort of horror films. And uh, and the only really American horror films I saw were the slashers, which we get on on video. But we didn't seem to get much of them on TV, which was weird. So it was always like weirdly, I didn't see the Universals again till I was an adult because I just hadn't really been exposed to them. I don't remember seeing them in the video shop and I definitely they weren't shown on TV that I knew. Or if they were, then I just didn't happen to catch them. It was all always, always the hammer ones for some reason. So it was it was weird, like cause then seeing those compared to the hammers, that I've grown to love them like over the years. So like appreciate them. But when I first saw them as a teen, I was kinda like, Oh, these are pretty tame. <laughs> but <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean, though? After seeing the hammer, and the hammer ones are quite tame as well, but after seeing the hammer ones, it was, like, quite weird. But now I, like, really appreciate them for what they were, the fact that they were, like, the first, and they gave us so many of the tropes that we know that uh, weren't, you know, even things that weren't really in the fiction or were just subliminal in the fiction, like, they're just the whole fact that you get this very sexy vampire, which uh, is... So- you know, it's in Dracula, but it's not overstated, is it? Because it's Victorian novel. It's like very corseted in many ways. <laughs> That's very a great... subversive, but also very zipped up. Oh, completely. Know? Yeah, I mean, the vampires, the vampirism in the novel, is, at times you could almost read it as like a metaphor for VD. Like it's not really like there's an eroticism to it, but there, it's taint. It's almost like this. You could feel like the guilt and the you know corrosion of it, which makes it even kind of sexier in a way if you're a degenerate like myself, apparently. But oh, I will say <laughs> this now, and hopefully the article will be online by the time we publish this. But Neil Snowden uh, just submitted an essay for our scenes series on Dracula Prince of Darkness. It's all about religious gu- the religious guilt theme in it, making it sexier. It's just fucking brilliant. It should be up by the time we've we've aired this episode. So anyone listening, totally recommend go to the magazine site, diabolikemagazine.com and check that out. Because it's just, it's all about how the fact that you've got the monks and the priests in it and it just kind of makes it a little bit naughtier and a little bit more perverse. And it's kind of like, yeah, it's really good take on the film. I think one of the most exciting takes I've read of that film. Oh my God, I can't wait to read this. I love Neil anyways. Like Neil does great work, so that'll... Oh, I was editing it and I was like, fan, fan. Oh, good. Well, see, that that brings to mind, like, the next question, though. So, of all the, like, because, of course, you know, if we're talking about cinematic vampires, Dracula is a pretty great place to start off with before we go into sort of our deeper cuts here. Um, like, who do you think, 
Who do you think is like the sexiest Dracula? Would you say? It's oh God, I, know, I couldn't. He would. I don't know. It's like Sophie's all... choice. I know. <laughs> I couldn't. I couldn't do that. I couldn't. I. I suppose at a real push, 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 I'd have to say you don't care. Oh my God, girl! Yes. Oh. Let, okay, this is. I'm glad you said that because I, I mean we're we're jumping ahead here, and I know he's not the quote unquote serious Dracula, but just because the fact that he's so fucking perverse. Oh my god, he is like the most beautiful. He's really like the most decadent. I think he's Dracula. Wonderful. Oh my god, I fell. In love. Oh, my God. When I first saw that, uh, when I first saw Blood for Dracula and Flesh for Frankenstein, because I saw them kind of back to back in my teens. And, uh, oh, my God. I was, it was like an awakening. <laughs> I know. If, I mean, I know we've planned to do feature-length episodes on these because they are just, ugh, ugh. They are just so sublime. And I know a lot of the classic horror fans kind of hate them because they're, like a parody but as far as like gothic goes gothic literature literary gothic is incredibly fucking perverse it's an incredibly perverse genre even though like i said with the dracula it's not always obvious if you start reading the context you know it's smutty as fuck <laughs> and then of course you get people like matthew lewis who i champion consistently with the monk he was just totally out there with his perversity. He was like necrophilia, incest, black mass, you know, nun burning, <laughs> you know. <clears throat> and so it's great, I think. But when it comes to the films, I think mainly because of the censorship, uh, we didn't really start to see a true perverse interpretation of Gothic. I mean, there are films that do it subvertly, even back to things like Dracula's Daughter. Uh, they they get the perversity in there, but in the seventies it all hell broke loose, and you just had these really decadent, decadent vampire stories, and it's just probably why it's my favourite era. Um, but that film in particular, it just oh, it just oozes, just just it's like I don't know, it's just possibly one of the most decadent gothic films ever made because it's so out there and Udo is like literally the most beautiful creature who ever walked this earth like even now as an older man <laughs> he's, he's just isn't gorgeous. it he's gorgeous my body can't take this treatment anymore the blood of this horse is killing me I just want my coughing back to sleep in. Yes. Yes. Udo Kier is like, if I had like a Mount Rushmore of beautiful gothic men, he is on there. <laughs> yes. Along with like Peter Murphy and Peter Steele. <laughs> you know, like, come on. And uh, it just, oh, in, in his face, like he's got one of those... His presence, it's not just that he's good looking, it's like his whole presence, he almost reminds me of like um, Conrad Veidt, and I love Conrad yes. Veidt so much. Yes, he's just got, he has got that, like that, just that total presence of like, you know, 
at a time in cinema when we'd really left that behind in, in a lot of ways. Oh, I know. Um, so many actors are boring looking now. Everybody just looks so beige. It's so, <laughs> you know, you look at Udo Kier and you're just like, he could be in the biggest. I mean, I, I've, I mean, I watched Blade because he was in it. People, okay. <laughs> and I like, quite like Blade. I've, I've, I've the first I've, one's okay. What's his name's quite. Uh, the bad guy in it. What's his fucking Stephen, name? Stephen Dorff. Stephen like, Dorff. Like, okay, come on, he's a hot hotness. That but, guy. Okay, but my problem <laughs> is like Stephen Dorff kills Udo Kier in that movie, and that's bullshit. Like you can tell me Stephen Dorff, and no offense to him, is gonna take down Udo Kier. No, 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 no. That's like saying Skeet Ulrich would kick Klaus Kinski's ass. I'm not buying it. I'm not buying it. <laughs> But um, I love Udo Kier. And, no, know, I will the- literally. I will literally watch anything that that is. <laughs> and we have like we. But we- <laughs> as, as far as his gothic went, I don't think he gets acknowledged enough for gothic because if you think he played Dracula, he played Frankenstein, and he also played Doctor Jekyll in the Strange Case of Doctor Jekyll and Miss Osborne, is wow, well. and that is just an incredibly, incredibly fucking perverse film. And he also pops up in Barofchek's uh, Lulu, maybe not like a gothic character, but it's Jack the Ripper as well. So when it comes to like Victorian, the Victoriana, gothic sort of thing, he's played all of them and Jack the Ripper and he's fabulous at all of them. And I just think he just doesn't get enough credit, I guess, because two of those films, Fresh for Frankenstein and Bird for Dracula, are seen as parodies, which I don't necessarily think is a bad thing i mean northanger abbey anyone jane austen wrote a parody of gothic back in the day you know and i think horror and comedy there's like we talked about that when we did our last episode like you know there's a fine line between the two they're they're very connected i think so it's like you do get these they're the same snobby snobs that kind of (laughs) dismiss (laughs) jess franco is like, you know, because Jess Franco's Count Dracula is Soledad Miranda. <laughs> oh. <clears throat> and that's and, and that's a great, that's actually one of my favorite Franco films. I love that adaptation. It's uh, beautiful. It's like, so, oh, it's beautiful. And it's honestly kind of closer to the novel, I think, than most adaptations. I mean, it's, um, I think if Franco had been given more of a budget for the ending, I, I, maybe it would be more revered. I think there's also just that snobbery, though, towards anything that is viewed as exploitation. Like, it's like, it's things are better now, but for a long time, it's like if you tried to, for a lot of us who champion these films, like, no, this is, this should be considered art house as much as anything else. Oh, it's such an incredible film. And to take, I mean, I know he wasn't really the first one who did it, but he, he did it in his own way to take the Dracula myth and totally subvert it so it's set in the sunlight. Um, it's set with Count Dracula is a woman. She's a sexy woman. We meet her and she's sunbathing in a bikini out in the sun. And it's just so subversive. I just think it's incredible. But you get these kind of classic types who are like, oh, can't deal with that, can't deal with that. And then, you know, they're the same sort of people who really, really, really slag off the, the fearless vampire killers as well. <clears throat> which is another film that I happen to love. And I take a bit of exception to that because I think that's such a beautiful film as well, some some of the scenes in that. 
And yes, again, it's a parody of the Hammer kind of stuff, but I think there's room for for both of them. You know, there's room for all of it, but I don't see why it has to be either or, but it kind of is for some people. Yeah, well, and, you know, the, the thing, too, is having Paul Morrissey approach it. I love, I'm a big fan of Paul Morrissey. And just the little, there's so much, like, going on, and especially in the Dracula, because there's, I mean, you have, like, sort of, like, Paul's, like, conservative political commentary kind of in there, too. And, the, and you kind of realize there's, like, you have, like, the dying sort of, like, old money family that are basically, you know, kind of almost destitute in a way. And then you have, like, the great, great Joe D'Alessandro as this communist <laughs> rapist gardener type who's like deflower. I mean, I he has one of my favorite lines. This is not, this is obviously not politically correct. But it's like, where's that little sister of yours? I want to rape the hell out of her. <laughs> like, what the? Like, there's so many moments in that film where you're like, what universe have I entered? You know, it's, but it's so great. And, you know, of course, Udo's classic, the blood of these whores is killing me. Oh, which is just. <laughs> I want that tattooed. Like, that's such Every a Every time line. I feel ill, I always <laughs> seem to gravitate to that screen grab as well of him throwing up the blood in the bathroom. <laughs> It'd be so, oh, it's so beautiful. And I love Arno Jurging, uh, who's basically the sidekick of both films. And I kind of wish he would have had more of a career. Like, he's great. Uh, it's, uh, They're all just... great. I just think it's just such a perverse take on the Dracula myth. It's just so, it kind of rallies against everything. Because as much as I love Gothic, and as much as it can be perverse and... You know, there are obviously a lot of women writing in Gothic and, you know, there's a the whole thing about Bram Stoker being gay and, you know, was he using the novel to talk about that? And, you know, which obviously those people complaining about the bisexual Dracula in the new BBC drama never read the novel, but they're just like, <laughs> how dare they do this to the classics? Well, and these it's are the like, same people that are, they have no problem with lesbian vampires, but you know, they don't want no like, homo dude, vampires. He, what do you think was going on between Dracula and Jonathan Harker, for fuck's sake? Like, yeah. what, what do you actually think was happening there? You know, like, yeah. it's just insane to me. It's, but uh, But it could also be, I think, on the surface, also very kind of conventional and reflected those sort of Victorian beliefs about sexuality and stuff like that. And but for Dracula, it's kind of like the antithesis of that. It kind of makes a mockery of all that. And I just find it absolutely wonderful. I think without Udo Kier, though, it could have been a complete... Like, I couldn't imagine anyone out. I think it's because it's Udo Kier. Oh, God, the, yeah. Oh, he's a star. And, and just his presence. So it never falls into, um, like, too much mockery or anything because you, you're just so spellbound by his... And he just puts all his all into it. Um, you're just so spellbound by that that it doesn't fall into some cheesy sort of parody. It's, like, part art film, part anarchy. <laughs> it's just, like, you know, so fucking sexual as well. And it's oh, incredible. Well, and it's and especially because it's like there's there's almost this like sort of wonderful implication that like 
Dracula is like the most like together of the decadence because it's like the sisters, like two of them, you know, are banging Joe D'Alessandro. They're banging each other. <laughs> so you have like this, <clears throat> like all of this, 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 this air. Like it's such a great, just it's a great film to just revel into, and just it's never boring. Every frame, every minute of it, and. um I honestly, like, I'm glad you brought up the BBC one because I actually, I watched, I finally watched the teaser trailer for that this morning and um, I kept thinking like, God, I wish Udo Kier was Dracula again. Like, because I mean, Dracula yeah. in the book, you first see him as an older man. Like, it's, uh, yeah. you know. Why can't Udo come out and do another turn? I he, would, he would just be so good. Oh my God. That would, oh. If anybody... I, I won't I won't name the author, but I read in, in a book about European Gothic film the piece about that. I don't I won't shame the author, called it one joke <laughs> stretched out too long. And I and I read that a couple of years ago and I'm still angry about it. <laughs> <laughs> That's oh my <laughs> Like, you know, when you see comments like that, you almost like, did we see the same film? Like, how could yeah, you? Yeah, it's just so transgressive and just so like, oh, it's just like, how can you, how can you not be bowled over by Udo Kier for a start, just in anything? Yeah, but, but it's also Paul Morrissey, who's a great director. And, you know, you have just, the, you know, just the whole cast is amazing. I mean, you even have like, you know, the legendary director, Victoria De Sica, as the patriarch of the family. Um, and just everybody, like, the whole cast, everybody's a great face. It's a great, you know, and that's one of Paul Morrissey's, I think, tr like, strong suits. Like, even if you're not, like, a fan of his films, like, I, you can't really accuse him of having uncaptivating actors. And if you do accuse that, then you're wrong. <laughs> so it's just, it's such a gift. And, um, but what, what's her name in it as well from Suspiria, Stefania Cassini? Yes, yes. Um, I mean, because it was filmed in Italy. There's always mm. that, there's always been that myth that Antonio Margheriti was like part director, but I don't think that's ever been confirmed. I think that was just more to do with the fact that you had to have Italian names attached to the credits. Right. So I well, don't know, but um, obviously his gothic was very perverse, but I don't really think he had anything to do with it. But just the fact that it has because it's filmed over there and you have a kind of an international cast, it has that sort of Euro cult vibe to it as well, which I love. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I think, uh, I believe uh, uh, Cassini and D'Alessandro were a couple for a number of years after that movie. So, so you see, Dracula brought love together. <laughs> I think that's, I think that's With absolutely. With beautiful people, because they're both really beautiful. Ridiculously. Well. <laughs> ridiculously good like, looking. Imagine being on the set of that film. It's just like everyone just looks incredible. Oh my god! I would probably just feel so creepy because it'd be like I can't stop staring at Udo. I'd feel like so creepy. I'd be like, I'm sorry, sir. <laughs> but just be beautiful. But uh, you know, what's yeah, the... I th I think if I'd seen that before I saw Dracula, Prince of Darkness, I would not have been stuffing my window up. Oh no. no, no! I came I to appreciate the sexual qualities of Christopher Lee later on, but that wasn't my awakening. <laughs> no, um, one thing you brought up that I, I definitely feel like I, I want to touch upon is you know people complaining about Dracula being bisexual and 
you know, I've always noticed there's sort of this this weird sort of homophobia with the people in vampirism. Like, they're fine with lesbian vampires. Oh, totally. But... I mean, I said that in my comment to this whole outcry was, you know, you're absolutely fine with Ingrid Pitt and you're absolutely fine kind of slobbering over Ingrid Pitt and Madeline Smith. But, you know, put a gay Dracula or semi-gay bisexual Dracula in there and it's ruining the classics. And it's like... What a fucking bunch of shit. Trying to use that as a justification for what is basically homophobia. You know, the comments were just obscene. Some of the comments were just, you know, and they were trying to use, oh, well, this was never in the original. Uh, they were trying to say book, but I think from some of their comments, they'd never, none of them had actually ever read the book, which I find hilarious. Because uh, they're all such experts on on Dracula, but yet their whole kind of uh, view of Dracula has been taken from Hammer horror films. And it's like, if you read the fucking book, you know, it's in there. It's <laughs> <Just> like, <laughs> vampires have always had dubious sexualities. I mean, they're, um, but they're kind of, that's part of their allure. They're often quite androgynous. And their whole idea is that they can seduce anybody, like male or female. They can they can seduce anyone. That's like their power, isn't it? And it's not, you know, I know it took Anne Rice to kind of, and we'll talk about Anne Rice, but it took Anne Rice to really sort of bring that out in an obvious way. But it's always been part of the, well, I always thought it was always been part of the vampire myth that there's something, especially the relationship between Dracula and Jonathan Harker there's always been something about it that's like obsessional and kind of you know skirting that border of you know I don't think Dracula was a heterosexual man <laughs> he's like a you know of, of just a very when you think about vampirism it's probably the sexiest monster and vampirism is always tied to sex so if they're biting men you know, why is it only sexual if they're biting a woman? I don't get that. Yeah. No, it's, it, it always cracks me up when people get like that. Because I totally just hear all of their complaints in like this very mooky, like, I ain't no homo kind of thing. Like, I just picture like, it's just, it's so, just such a devolved way of thinking. But also you're talking about mythical creatures. Like, if you're, oh, if, no! you're if you're big, if, if you're that insecure with your own sexuality, <laughs> you're getting offended over fictional characters <laughs> sexuality, then maybe maybe you're afraid you're seeing something you like, you know? Like, that's the... <laughs> it I is, mean, isn't it? It's like how, who are you, like, it's not even a real thing. Like, as far as we know, there aren't any real vampires. So, like, you know, what does it matter at the end of the day but this oh it was all pc gone wrong and the bbc are just doing this to 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 fuel the woke people and i'm i'm nowhere near fucking woke but it's like for god's sake at least they're trying something new at least they're trying to not just rehashing the same fucking thing that we've seen time and time again how many adaptations of dracula have we had now at least they're trying to do something fresh with it and it's like you know might be good might not be good but saying you're gonna boycott the bloody bbc because they have a bisexual <laughs> dracula is a bit like <laughs> a bit over the top <clears throat> yeah that's I, I you gotta love people's moralities where they're more concerned about bisexuality than somebody who's you know drinking the blood of the innocent <laughs> 
Like it's okay. Like I mean, literally, like in the in the book, and in, in, I think for most of the film adaptations, there's always that scene where like he brings like his brides a baby. So these people are, on paper are fine with <laughs> babies being murdered and being food sources for vampires, but God forbid, Dracula be into dudes as well as women like it's so ridiculous. oh they were panicking we're gonna have a trans rem field next and they were just like I how far will this go i know it's just like someone crowdfund that because if it upsets yes. these people and and it's like excuse me like dr jackal and sister hyde like hammer weren't exactly you know totally conventional in their own way i think the best comment on there though was some guy who's like so we've had a, like a kung fu dracula <laughs> and we've had like this and this is crossing the line for you <laughs> <laughs> yes thank you bless that bless that person that's that's good <laughs> but it is, i think the sexuality in vampire films still makes certain people feel very uncomfortable there's they're fine with like you said the films like the vampire lovers i absolutely love the vampire lovers i was saying it's an absolute icon to me i think she changed the way that you know it was her performance in in that that kind of opened the floodgates for so many other female vampire films in the early 70s like the success of that film that kind of came out, that came out in 70, and then 71, we just see a whole load of them. And I think she did a, a thing. But again, it still has that conventional aspect of it's lesbianism, and so we can deal with that. Um, but I think when it comes to the other sexual aspects of vampirism, because there is a fine line, and they're often very androgynous, and there often are these very queer sort of, and we'll talk about those when we get to things like the Lost Boys and the interview with the vampire. <laughs> but they just, people cannot cope with that. And they just, which is why I think the vampire genre for me is the one that I'm consistently drawn to. Because it is, it just addresses all these things that the other monsters don't tend to do. They just don't have that whole scope in them, do they? I think, you know, vampires, one, I think you nailed it. Part of their allure is you know, as far as monsters go, it's kind of, they're almost like a, a vessel to kind of explore, you know, deeper or darker, or just even just kind of like more forbidden sides of sexuality in a way. That's not, I mean, they're not always used for that, obviously, but, um, but I mean, in a way, it's almost kind of like, I think, liberating, because it's, you know, it's still a fantasy construct. But yeah, I mean, think about it, how many, you know, you didn't really get to see, I think, that kind of exploration with, with sexuality like that early on in other in other ways, you know, because it's... No, um, I know the genre films, no. I no. Just, it's, it's not the scope for it, but with the vampires, you get the, the fact. I know some vampires can be entirely monstrous, and I like that as well. But the ones that I tend to be drawn to are the ones that are like the super sexy vampires who are like beautiful and they're hypnotic. And people are drawn to them. And then you get all this wonderful context about sexuality and death and immortality and just all this wonderful stuff going on. So, you know, I just I still think that makes certain people feel uncomfortable. They're very happy with the conventional films, but anything outside of the box and it's just too much for them. They're just like, why are they doing this? 
You know, speaking of uncomfortable, you know, people being made uncomfortable uh, through the vessel of the vampire genre, uh, one film that is, I know, a, a personal cult favorite of ours, it features one of our most beloved character actors, the great late Michael Pataki, or as I like to call him, Michael fucking Pataki, because he's just, he's <laughs> that Pataki, is Grave of the Vampire. <laughs> and this film is, is oh my God, it, there is some, there's some imagery in this film that is, I would say, insane. It is so... I'm going to keep saying perverse all the way through this episode, (laughs) so apologies, but it really is. I mean, he's not just a a vampire. He's kind of like a rapist, murder, serial killing, nutcase, uh, chatter-upper of newball students. He's he's just all the things, isn't he? (laughs) He's just all the things. He's really nasty, but there's also just something about him that's just, I don't know. Oh, Pataki's, yeah, he was, for for those of you, which, I mean, I can't imagine our listeners not knowing who Michael Pataki is, but if, if you don't, Please, welcome to the fold. This is, we are going to convert you here. Pataki is one of those actors that, in addition to having an unforgettable face uh, and presence, just has this sort of, like, I don't know if manic's the right word. There's an energy to him, like, in every role, even if it's, like, a small role, um, where it's just, he's captivating even when he's being really just kind of creepy. And, uh, I mean, yes, I mean, we actually have a, a literal vampire rape in this film, uh, which is funny because I think a lot of people, you could view sort of like a vampire attacking a victim as a type of rape because, you know, you have like elements of mind control and things like that. So it's not really, it's against their will, but it's not. And there's a gray area. But in this film, there is no gray area. It is, a, it is rape. And she gets pregnant with a vampire hybrid and this was years before blade so years before blade and the baby's fed on bottles of blood which i love oh that is my favorite because i mean if we get like details like you see her like getting out a syringe filling up the bottle you see her cutting her breast yeah i mean it's so when i said it was like perverse i mean it is totally perverse it's It's totally directed by john hayes who did a lot of refies and hardcore films and was like really good friends with Pataki and so Pataki would turn up in a lot of his films even his like not really his hardcore films but some of his comedies not in the hardcore parts but I mean John Hayes was so bonkers so brilliantly bonkers anyway that you know if he's going to do a vampire film it's not going to be some straightforward vampire film I think of all the kind of American independence, it's so out there. <laughs> it's just, there's not anything you can really compare it to. And like you said, years, like decades before Blade, you get a daywalker, a kind of half human, half vampire daywalker, which is just fucking brilliant. Oh, God. And uh, and there's also just, I mean, there's so much great, like, I love there's the shot of, like, the vampire, like, the Pataki vampire in the coffin, and there's, like, lizards and spiders, you know, it's sort of taking some gothic imagery there, but, uh, God, that film is so nuts, and, you know, um, well, I know you know this cat, but I don't know if people listening realize that Pataki was also in another vampire film of this era that is near and dear to, certainly to my heart, I think, to you know, should be to everybody's, which is, uh, he was in the sequel to the first Count Yorga film because he was in Return of Count Yorga. 
Because we haven't talked about Count Yorga, have we? I mean, Count Yorga, Robert, Robert Quarry was another fucking game changer of a, of a film and one that Hammer sadly tried to replicate in Dracula AD 1972. Not really getting the whole swinging hippie thing <laughs> in there. I love that film. But Jesus Christ, it's when Stephanie Beecham's talking about the fuzz. And it's just like, for fuck's sake, <laughs> like, <laughs> nobody fucking speaks like that. But, you know, just the whole thing of Count Yorga, I mean, another incredibly sexy, almost like the counterculture vampire film. You saw such a shift um, post-Count Yorga. Like, I know we talked about Jess Franco was kind of doing new things with Dracula. And, you know, that's got a kind of swinging vibe. But then you get Count Yorga and it's another film that opens the floodgates for people. It's almost like people realised when you think of of Gothic, people tend to think of Gothic in terms of like it's a Victorian thing and it's so therefore you need period costumes and it needs to be set in this Victorian era and anything outside of that is seen as like... some sort of deviation like so you often get like we said these people ruining the classics you know because it's deviating but when those novels were written they were written they were contemporary novels that were written in their time uh with the vampire and so they were addressing things of of the period like fears and anxieties of that particular society but it's weird that it took outside of... I mean, there were odd ones. I'm, I'm not going to say there weren't exceptions. Dracula's Daughter, which I've already mentioned. Blood and Roses was, was another one that did it contemporary. But generally, you know, before the 70s, people would think the vampire film is like a period set, Victorian thing. And then you get to something like Count Yorga, and it's like all of a sudden people realise, ah... The vampires actually immortal, so they can appear in any time. <laughs> it's just like... <laughs> well, it... And I think, I do think a lot of that was budget related. I mean, you did have, like, especially in the Euro cult ones, uh, they couldn't afford period sets and period costumes. So you did have a change from traditional gothics. It was just too expensive. But, you know, the. Count Yorga, that was the fucking swinging film. It was the groundbreaker. It was the one that opened the floodgates for, you know, Dracula can be, like, hip. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and the thing I love about both of those films, too, other than, well, I mean, Robert Corey's number one, and actually, while I'm speaking of it, um, I think for my money, I would put him right next to Christopher Lee and Lugosi, just because he... And, you know, Chris Sarandon, who we'll get to in a little bit, because uh, Robert Corey, like, has, like, that perfect mix that makes to me, like, a great vampire on film, which is, you know, at, at times he is legit very charismatic and genuinely very seductive. I actually think this is, uh, I think the first Yorga film has, I think, one of the most sensual uh, scenes I've seen in vampire films. And, I mean, there's not even any nudity, but it's just the, the vibe and the feeling, and a lot of it's Corey, too. But also, he could be just incredibly intimidating and scary yeah. and sinister, and he just has all of that mix. But he also, the thing I love about Yorga is he has a dry kind of humor. Like, there's one of my favorite... <laughs> 
<laughs> favorite scenes of Return of Cat Yorgos shows up at this like orphanage and they're having like a little school function and this kid's playing some rock and roll piano and the kid's like oh you like this kind of music and, and just without it being you know, Yorgos like only when it's played well <laughs> like that I'm like <laughs> he's so bitchy like I love it and but the thing that's cool about both films is there's a pretty seamless integration of like what you were talking about Cat with it being like a very modern uh, kind of era in modern times. For, well, I mean, I, I guess, you know, obviously for that time period, but also there's, you know, you do have like some, some of the cool kind of what people associate with Gothic tropes, which is, you know, like the incredible sort of house on the outskirts. It's kind of like a castle. He has like this deformed manservant, um, you know, the vampire brides kind of thing. But, uh, but it doesn't feel out of place. Like everything feels very, uh, just very together like i think no because i think i think it's it's one of its big successes is it links the whole vampire line to this very counterculture very age of aquarius 60s occultism in a way where you have the idea of uh, like mystics and stuff and so it feels natural I guess it doesn't do what like Dracula AD 1972 tried to do the same thing, but it didn't quite work. Like you had Johnny Alucard, who we should give him an honorable mention because he's fucking sexy. In a sanctum, baby. Food, music, wine. Now. Playtime. Later. Oh. He is the best part. In Dracula AD. Yeah, I mean, he, he is just the fucking coolest of the cool with his satanic orgies and his little things. He's trying to resurrect Dracula. But unfortunately, then when Dracula appears, they kind of keep him in this church and it, and it loses all the cool bits. Whereas Yorga, you could believe that Yorga would... And, and he's quite kind of... What's the word for it? Kind of very uptight and, you know, Christopher Lee. <laughs> you know, by this point, it's probably sounds... I copped so much shit for for saying something about The Devil Rides Out, which I love. And I'm probably going to cop shit for this. But believe me, I love Dracula 18, 1972. But there's something kind of very static and, like, uptight about Christopher Lee. He wasn't happy playing the role at that point and didn't really want to do it and... You know, whereas Robert Quarry, like, I think you're right. And AIP were grooming him to become the next star. And I don't, I've never really understood why that stalled. Because, he, he you know, the success of Yorga was, like, really inspiring to other filmmakers. And he did Doctor F- uh, the Dr. Five sequel. Um, you know, but he kind of, why, why didn't he really, or was it just that the film industry was changing and, I, I don't know because he was being pitched as the next Christopher Lee, wasn't he? He was being groomed and he had that I think he had the he had the very sinister edge, like you said, but he was also sexy and you could believe him in a kind of swinging seventies world, whereas Christopher Lee didn't quite fit there. He was better off in satanic rights up in a tower being there <laughs> <laughs> wasn't he he wasn't really you couldn't really believe him being in with the hippies absolutely well and i think the thing too about yorga uh and with Corey too is um 
I think you nailed it with the enthusiasm because I think, yeah, Lee was like, you compare Lee's performance into uh, Franco's Count Dracula to versus, yeah, him in Dracula 80 is 72 or Satanic Rites. And there's, there's a difference. You can tell, I mean, Christopher Lee checked out is still great because it's Christopher Lee, you know, and I love those movies too. But, um, but you know, your- but he didn't really want to be there, did he? No. He didn't really, whereas Robert Quarry. You know, he was coming into his own and he just has this sort of charisma and this sort of energy about him that you don't then see in Dracula AD 72. And in that film, you know, like I said, I find the Johnny Alucard character a lot more interesting. I would have liked to have watched a film about him as the head of some sort of hippie satanic vampire cult. I wouldn't have minded even using the whole Dracula thing, to be honest. <laughs> oh, God, that would have been amazing. Because I found him more, more fascinating than, mm. you know, the fact that Christopher Lee was kind of just prowling around. <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, and I mean, Corey was engaged to the point where I remember reading an interview with him and I believe an episode, or an episode, an issue of Psychotronic Magazine where um, he had, this was his idea for a third uh, Yorga film, which obviously never happened, sadly, and it's brilliant because you know his idea was basically after the first two films, Yorga's just been kind of like beaten down. He's been rejected by love. He's been you know murdered or nearly murdered twice now, and he goes underground uh, in the sewers of Los Angeles and basically vampirizes the entire like homeless community of Los Angeles as like an ultimate revenge against humanity. Which would have been amazing. Oh my god, so good, <laughs> like so amazing. so brilliant, and definitely. I mean, I haven't seen any vampire films to this date that touch on anything like that. I mean, that's amazing, and um, but also you mentioned the cult and the occult aspects. One film I love that he was in uh, is The Death Master, which is. Uh, sadly seems very kind of obscure i've never seen that what is that oh my god it's so good it's basically sort of taking like Corey's another vampire but he's he's got kind of longer hair and a little bit of facial hair and it's almost like he's like a charles manson but suave type and he basically Ooh, I need to watch oh this. it's it's really good and he's basically preying upon these kind of group of bohemian hippies and turning it into like a little cult um it's a very very underrated little movie um and some people kind of consider it like an unofficial yorga sequel i wouldn't um just because it's just it's a clearly kind of a different character but i mean anything with robert quarry um especially in a lead role some really interesting characters i mean yorga was a kind of like a cult mystic and then in Dr. Fibes Rises again, he had a kind of weird, like, mythical sort of occult thing in that as well, where he's looking for the elixir of immortality or whatever. And he was in um, the other film that I love him in is uh, Paul Maslansky's Sugar Hill. Oh, I love. Exploitation. Yes. You oh. know, and, the, and so he played some, like, just really, really, and again, that's another film with like a whole kind of voodoo, hoodoo thing going on. Um, he plays some really interesting characters, although he's a he's like a gangster in uh, in Sugar Hill, so he's a bit different. But yeah, he was in some really fucking interesting genre films from that period, and then he 
I don't know. I guess the film industry was changing, so the opportunities just weren't there. So he just started doing other... I mean, he carried on working, but, you know, he, he could have really been, like, if the opportunity was there, I think he could have been done a lot more in genre. Absolutely. He should have been just, I think, pushed a lot more than he was. And because I've seen some speculations that it's like, well, that type of horror was kind of getting edged out by the late 70s and 80s. But I'm like, but I mean, Christopher Lee was still in movies. I mean, a lot of those actors still found bigger, you know, bigger work. Some of it, you know, varying in quality, but that's, I think that's typical of almost any actor. Um, so why wasn't Corey? You know, like he, he was just so great. And, um, you know, it's kind of like a little sad because I remember seeing him. I mean, at least it, it gave, he gave him work. But I know, like, I think Fred Olin Ray put him in small roles in a number of his films, like Beverly Hills Vamp. And I watched that literally because Robert Corey was in it. And he's in it for, like, four minutes. I was so... <laughs> and, I mean, even Eddie Deason could not save that Aww. movie for me. <laughs> but, um, but Robert Corey was just, yeah, I mean, he was just so... Just one of the coolest vampires. Uh, and you know you know the power of Yorga. Because also in that same interview, he talks about the story where he was promoting Yorga uh, in, at some theater in the Midwest, I believe. And this real gangly kid came up behind him. And before he, like, before he realized what was going on, the kid ejaculated on Robert Corey. Like, this kid... <laughs> <laughs> I'm serious. Like, I'm like, that... I mean... I mean, come on. Like, how many people can say that they're, you know... Spontaneous ejaculation at the sight of him. Oh, another vampire. Where are your fangs? Where are your manners? I mean, that's, um... It seems a bit rude, <laughs> but... Uh, I mean, I definitely don't encourage people to randomly uh, ejaculate on anybody <laughs> without their permission. You know, get permission, people. Don't be rude. But it... <laughs> But I mean, but come on, that is the power of Yorga that you have, you have just, you know, just like some gangly, probably Eddie Deason type teenager just spanking it and just, you know, jizzing on the back of your leg. <laughs> oh my goodness. That's, uh, I mean, you don't hear, you don't hear Christopher Lee talking about that. That's probably no. for the best. But <laughs> Oh my God. <laughs> I'm I'm just lost for words now. <laughs> it's, that's a hard that's a hard hard thing to to follow up from. But um, but yeah. So uh, you know what's you know one thing though is um, because the the mode of like you know you always think of vampires, uh, being very seductive, and that trend did continue. Luckily for all of us in the eighties, because you know what we got to talk about now, cat. Oh, quick, before we go on to that, I did want to say, though, that we see, because the 80s, for me, like the 80s vampire after the Dracula, after the hammer, it was really the 80s vampire were, the 80s vampires were my sexual awakening vampires, <laughs> because I was coming of age as those films were coming out, and so i was responding to them but you see the seeds to that in in the early 70s and i wanted to link it to yoga because i don't know salem's lot came out after yoga i'm not sure but the two literary works of fiction from that era that really changed the course of the vampire film and you saw a lot of experimentation by the end of the 70s 
So things like Cronenberg's Rabbit, um, things like Romero's Martin, you know, we started to see a lot of strange different takes, really unique takes on the vampire, which were wonderful, that completely almost abandoned the gothic thing. Things like Thirst from 1978, 1979, that very strange Australian film with David Hemmings in it where people they're like kind of farming uh, ex-junkies in a house spa <laughs> to feed off them uh, but you had uh, Stephen King's Salem's Lot and his idea was to bring Count Dracula to middle America in the 1970s and show how terrible the people were in those towns it wasn't even that the Dracula figure in that was the ultimate villain. It was the bitchy neighbours and the gossipers and the adulterers. I mean, incredible book. And Anne Rice's interview with the vampire, which was, I think, 78, uh, which really looked at vampirism as an existential crisis and it looked at homosexuality. There's strings of paedophilia in it as well with the Claudia character and it's just, you know... And totally changes the direction. So by the time you get to the 80s, I'm not saying both of those books had a direct influence on all of the films, but you do see people looking at the vampire entirely differently. And so for me, it's one of the most interesting decades of vampire films, I think. Sorry, it was a massive diatribe there. <laughs> no, no, I love it. And I think that's an excellent point too, because... Um... You know, especially with Anne Rice, well, and Stephen King both. I mean, you have two people who became some of the biggest um, game changers and biggest figures in genre fiction. I mean, just, you know, people who don't even, you know, don't even really read that much will read, the, you know, books by them. Like, they're that big. They have that level um, of exposure. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, no, it's... um. With eighties vampire. Well, Stephen King. I mean, Stephen King. You just redefined gothic. I think people don't necessarily think of him as a gothic writer, but if you look at the sort of stories that he was writing, they're totally gothic. They're they're using gothic themes anyway, like a very, very particular type of American gothic as well. Like even things like Christine, where you have this idea of money. Uh, the Shining is like the consuming house from Poe and he in Salem's Lot, he's resurrecting the vampire, but moving him away from the European aristocracy and bringing him to like an American town in, in New England. And he's just totally like redesigning Gothic. And I think some of that had such an, such an impact on the 80s films that we're going to talk about, because people don't necessarily think about things like The Hunger or things like, uh, things well, Fright Night, I guess, sort of parodies gothic, or things like The Lost Boys, say. They don't tend to think of them as gothic films, but they, they truly are, and they're just totally different in style and context. Yeah, well, and I think even... Um like when you talked about like the seventies approaching vamp, like vampirism uh, differently, like one of my favorite vampire films of the eighties and, um, and not to plug, but one that I have written for D about for Diabolique. So anybody curious, <laughs> you can check that out on the website, but um, it was the 1982, I think it was released in 84, but it was made in 82 film called the black room. 
uh, and basically you have themes of like incest, um, you know, sort of uh, uh, suburban couples. They're, you know, they're outside kind of a typical family, but, you know, there's infidelity and it's all centered around this, this black room uh, that is rented out for basically, you know, sort of secret sexual encounters. And so you have a lot of sordidness going on in the film, but, in, but it's handled just so beautifully and in such a moody way. Um, it's a really, really little gem of a film that I wish, um, I hope gets some kind of good release at some point. Cause it's really, it's been out of print, I think since the eighties, but, um, but it's another one I haven't seen. <laughs> oh, it's so, it's so good. It's another one I haven't seen. It's so good. And, um, and no, and I think like you nailed it about King. Like, I honestly, I need to read more Stephen King. Like I'm kind of ashamed to say I've only read like a little bit of his stuff. Um, I was raised by somebody who's a massive fan. My mother, like to this day, loves Stephen King and, you know, reads, you know, as soon as he has a book out, she gets it. And, um, but, uh, like, for example, like with film, though, I mean, think about how many horror films of the 80s that we grew up with were based on Stephen King's works. Like, it's it's insane. I can't think of any other author who's had that kind of reach, you know, because um, even Anne Rice, there's only two film adaptations of hers with Stephen King. It's multitudes upon multitudes <laughs> of and adaptations. And of course, we had the, the adaptation of Salem's Lot in 79. Which is excellent. By David Soul. Not that isn't a sexy vampire, though. But... No, no, no. <laughs> but it does have James Mason in it. It's a sexy vampire's assistant. <laughs> Kind of. I love that. That's how I'm, I'm going to refer to James Mason in that film now. The sexy James Mason is the sexy vampire. He could literally <laughs> like just say anything, and it's sexy. Isn't it's it? James... the Toby Hooper miniseries I'm talking about, but he's like Mr. Straker. He's like the, you know, I guess the Renfield, but he's in that he's like an antique expert assistant. <laughs> And it's just it's just the way he speaks and it's just like oh but the but the actual vampire isn't sexy, he's like more of a Nosferati no. thing. But I think that just totally opened the door to explore different ways of looking at the the vampire. And I think it's become really trendy these days to slag off Stephen King and people are like, Oh you know, but when you look at how he redefined American Gothic, like after you know the 70s so he was thinking of very contemporary issues like nuclear war and he was like the the anti-vietnam generation you know he was part of that so he used gothic to talk about very contemporary things and because it's not overtly gothic i think people tend to think it's something else but like all of his early stories maybe not his later ones but the earlier ones are, are just a total new concept of gothic that i think it doesn't really ever get enough credit for for like reinventing gothic uh, and making it contemporary and making it like Salem's Lot is just fucking brilliant the book is brilliant the mini series is is brilliant as well um and you know that was something completely new and different absolutely well and you know um even though it's not vampires um like I think I think Silver Bullet is one of the most uh underrated werewolf movies of the 80s well, again silver yeah God, silver bullet so... like another kind of you know gothic thing even the shining though because the shining the consuming house the idea of the consuming house is something inherent in edgar Allan poe in the house of usher 
this idea of a house that can draw from you and it can take your life force and it can change your personality uh, is something that Shirley Jackson used. And Shirley Jackson, obviously, in the 50s, really redefined American Gothic as well. And King was inspired by her. But just this whole de idea of a house can change you, I think. And then you see The Shining, and people don't think of that as a gothic film, but it totally is. It's like a purely American gothic film. Um, and the book as well, obviously, you've got the ghosts and the supernatural. But to make that something of its time, I think, is brilliant. I'm on a total rant here, but <laughs> I see so many people just dismissing... Like, I know he's gone on a bit, and some of his later books aren't that great, but, you know, to me, I don't know if it's because i got a weird kind of fetish for Americana because I don't live in America, but he just seems to really capture, like, the working-class experience of America, and his, his, especially his earlier novels are just very alive with all this detail about real people living in this very American place, and I just love it. I, I think he's very similar to John Irving, and I don't know if you've, you've read him, but he's one of my favourite writers, not a genre writer. But he writes... Uh, he wrote things like The World According to Garp and The Hotel New Hampshire and everything. Oh, wow. But all his, all his novels are, like, set in, set in New England, and they have very similar context to Stephen King's Without the Horror... She often get writers or teachers or, you know, these characters that crop up. And they're very, very similar. But I don't think Stephen King gets the credit because he's often seen as the kind of genre writer or the scary man writer. And he doesn't really get that literary, which I think is a shame. I think some of his earlier books really redefined American fiction. They're not just kind of pulpy trash. They really aren't. They're some of them are really dense character studies about human nature. Well, and, you know, the thing, um, you know, what I've read of King, and I've certainly I've seen a lot of their film adaptations, is you can tell, like, that he is somebody who, he knows what he speaks of. Like, he clearly grew up working class and in a very blue-collar kind of situation because it's like, as somebody, you know, because I am American, and it's like, I see some of the, you know, I'll hear some of the language and see just how he paints people. And it's like, we've, like, you know, I've worked with people like that. I've known people like that. I have a relative like that, you know. Um, and so there is like an authenticity to it. Uh, oh, they're wonderful. They're so character driven as well, which is kind of rare in genre fiction. They're so character driven that you really sort of, you know, invest in the characters. It being an, another one. I haven't seen the new It films, but I love the miniseries we're totally tangent to going off on a tangent <laughs> now but I just wanted to get that in because I think Stephen King was one of the kickstarters of the new American gothic and America really fucking ruled gothic in the 80s because if you look at what we were doing in Britain it was virtually nothing like in terms of the vampire we had our era in the 1970s and so did Europe <clears throat> we had all our good vampire films sort of ended by the mid-70s. Um, by the 80s, we weren't really doing anything in that fold. Uh, and so it was for the American filmmakers to really pick up the baton and do something else. And throughout the 80s, we got, as well as the werewolf films, which you mentioned, some of these really quite higher-budget vampire films 
that were really fucking interesting, like The Hunger, Fright Night, Near Dark, which if anyone hasn't read Heather's piece on Diabolique magazine, read that piece. Uh, The Lost Boys, you know, um, just these really great new American Gothic versions of the vampire, which I it's one of my favourite eras of that whole thing. I love the 70s stuff, but then I absolutely... And it kind of starts with Martin and things at the end of the 70s. But, you know, the British, the Europeans, weren't doing anything with the vampire at this point. They kind of abandoned it. The Italians had gone into cannibals and zombies. And the British, Pam Horror, were just making TV programmes. So there was really nothing else. What came out of America in that one decade was totally fresh and unique. Oh my God. I'm so glad you mentioned Near Dark because that, um, obviously I have a lot of love for that film. And, um, and no, it's fascinating because that one, I think out of all the ones you mentioned, that one may be the most, in my opinion, like quintessentially American. Like it's, it's got basically kind of like a Western, it's like a horror Western. It is. It's, I find it fascinating purely for that. Well, it's a great film anyway. Great, great cast, great film. But I find the whole desert western aspect of it just oh, <laughs> it's sublime. It is, it, and the and oh, you know that is some sexy vampires. Oh my god! Can we talk about the like? I I don't even know which one. Okay, between Lance Hendrickson and Bill Paxton <laughs> and Jeanette Goldstein, who's fierce. She's gorgeous. It's just, oh my goodness. But especially Henriksen. I wouldn't want to, I just couldn't choose. Oh, no. I mean, the cast is just fucking amazing. They're so good. Though, um, if I wanted to join that gang, I would have to kick that creepy little kid out. That kid is, (laughs) he's so creepy. He is literally the creepiest member of, oh my God. He's so good though. Like, it's good. That was like the 80s thing though, wasn't it though? That they had the creepy kids because the Lost Boys got one and... Uh, the creepy little kid in the Lost Boys. I don't know what that was about. <laughs> well, I don't know. See, for, for me, for the Lost Boys, because I remember as a teenager, uh, a friend of mine and I, we would watch that. Like, we'd rent it constantly and just watch it and rewatch it. Like, we loved it. But the, the, the character that always disturbed us was that oiled up saxophonist guy with this little. Oh my god, <laughs> sax man. <laughs> okay. It was just too much, I think, for, for our teenage. We could have had this oiled up guy in like a loincloth metal chain diaper situation and, you know, <laughs> doing his little pelvic I thrust. I love him. I love He's him just now. so oily. He's just so 80. You couldn't hug him. Um, you just, he just slide, right? <laughs> He's so crazy. I mean, there's just so much to dissect because basically like that whole clump of films came out when I was about... 13 between the ages of 13 and 15 (laughs) so you had fright night i don't know which we skipped the hunger we'll have to go back to that hunger was a film that i appreciated a lot later on i saw that as a teenager and i hate to say this but i found it a bit slow a bit boring i didn't quite get it and then i saw it again in my must have been my 20s and i thought jesus christ this film is sexy (laughs) like that opening (laughs) nightclub scene with the seduction of the people and the sex in the club and with David Bowie and Catherine Deneuve and I was just like oh my god like why didn't I pick up on this when I was younger but it just I don't know we'll go back to that but near dark 
Fright Night was 85 and then Near Dark and The Lost Boys were both 87. So we basically have thrown at us this whole hormonal lump of really <laughs> cool, really fucking sexy vampires that were, in the case of Near Dark and The Lost Boys, linked to this sort of punk, sort of subcultural... I know they're not punks really in Near Dark, but they have that kind of leather trousers look <laughs> going on. And, you know, and it was just too much. It was just too fucking much. I think that part in my life, those films are forever kind of fused into my psyche because it was just mind-blowing. The fact they followed so quickly as well and the, the time that they came out. Fright Night, even though it's almost kind of a parody and it goes back to those old, even like the old Universals we were talking about, Chris fucking Sarandon. Oh, God. Somehow. Yes. Where's boring knitwear in that and slacks? <laughs> and yet somehow the dance scene in that where he seduces the girl and he's wearing fucking knitwear is, I'm going to say, the sexiest thing in any vampire film. Like, it's still, I watch it now and I'm just like, and I can't even understand why. <laughs> like, but it's just so fucking intense. Uh, obviously, with Fright Night as well, you had this weird queer kind of angle as well where the vampire is like a confirmed bachelor and he lives with this well-heeled assistant and they're kind of like... And then you have the fact that the kid next door is spying on them and almost obsessed with this male vampire figure and... It doesn't seem sexually interested in his girlfriend at all. He's like too busy gawping at the guys <laughs> next door. So it's so transgressive in its way as well, but just so oh, oh, that dance. Oh my goodness. I okay, I completely agree. Like that um I'm pretty sure like that that film, that scene probably caused a lot of us to go into an early puberty, perhaps, because <laughs> oh boy, it's um Oh, and Chris Sarandon. I mean, it's just again, like like Robert Quarry and Christopher Lee and I go see before him has again that great sort of. He has this very powerful sensuality, and you know about him this charisma, but he he also is really at times quite scary and intense. Um, but oh my goodness, yes, that. Um, oh, he's just so powerful, and he does it in knitwear. He like he hasn't <laughs> even got all the gothic garnish and the capes and all the little things that you know you, he can't swirl around the cape or whatever. He's wearing a nice pair of sacks, and somehow he becomes incredibly sinister, but also incredibly sexy at the same time. And it's just like whoa, this is like, <laughs> and then you get. The fact that, you know, you can see why the, like, the main protagonist, Charlie Brewster, he's played by William Ragsdale, is obsessed with him because, uh, you know, the vampire's called Jerry Dandridge. So he even has this, like, really kind of mundane name. And somehow, you know, even without all of that, he is just one of the most memorable vampires, I think. And one that doesn't get... I know loads of people love Fright Night, 
but he doesn't seem to get the credit of the Count Dracula's or you know Chris Sarandon. No, and he and he really should because he you know again and not unlike Yorga or Udo Kier's uh, Dracula, I can't imagine another actor doing that. No, and I mean it wouldn't have worked. the The scene where he seduces Amy, uh, the girl, the uh, Charlie's girlfriend. He in this nightclub and they have this dance. And it's kind of like the music's not even great, is it? It's like, I'm not going to sing it. But it's not like some super cool... No. You you know, you have like Bauhaus in The Hunger. But it's it's not like that. Or like... No, you have the crayons. The Lost Boys. Yeah. Oh, God, yeah, the Lost Boys. Lost Boys has got a a great soundtrack. but So it's not great, but somehow just these two people in a nightclub, you know, not dressed up sexily, the music isn't particularly sexy but this scene where he seduces her and he makes a dance with him and then he 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 hypnotizes her it's just whoa oh my god well and just the chemistry too i mean especially when you realize like amanda burst the actress um who would go on to be a married with children that always fries my brain a little bit now when i go back and watch fright night because i'm like oh god it's marcy but um and i love her she's great but i mean in real life she's she is an out lesbian but even think about it like that's when somebody is like when you're chris sarandon and you're playing a vampire. I think it doesn't matter what your <laughs> what your sexual irritation is because it's just like damn, woo. But uh, and yeah, no, the music. I actually bought the soundtrack to Fright Night, thinking it was going to be the Brad Fidel score because I think the score is pretty good. Uh, but no, most of it was like the pop songs and yeah. What are those? Pop- like they weren't exactly memorable, but for some reason they work within the film. They're like brilliant within the film, and it's all to do with. Just this chemistry that's on screen, oh which is goodness. just incredible. Listen, you can have Yakety Sax playing, and if it's Chris Sarandon, <laughs> you're still gonna be like, "Damn, like, <laughs> he is." The Lost, bo- the Lost Boys, though, <laughs> that was like, and will always be my fucking obsession. People are strange when you're a stranger. Faces look ugly when you're alone. I mean, I've never really liked Keith Sutherland in a, in a, in that sort of way, in any other film, and he's got a fucking mullet. But for some reason, like I saw it when it first came out, and I was what fourteen, I think, when that first came out. So I was like, you know, buying Iron Maiden cassettes and Def Leppard and all that, and I was getting into the metal-y thing, and that film came out i saw that one before near dark they come out around the same time maybe i don't know um but it was like the rock star of vampire films and i know people look at it now and they think it's kind of cheesy and it is so very 80s but at the time it was like literally the coolest fucking shit on the planet it was just so cool, like these vampires on motorbikes in leather trousers and they live in this cave with doors, posters and they go to the fairground. <laughs> it was just like, this is fucking amazing. And I just became obsessed with it because it was just like, and I wanted to be like with every single one of them and I wanted to be every one of them. <laughs> and it was just like, apart from that creepy kid. Oh yeah, no, the creepy kid would have to go. And uh, I also, my favorite, my my particular Lost Boys crush though, I love Kiefer, 
but as a teenager, it was, and of course I can't remember his name now, because he's one of the, the lesser members, but it's the one with the long, like, dark hair. Like, he's gorgeous. <laughs> <laughs> you miss sucker. They all were there, they weren't they? They were like, they were like, you know, I just they were just so fucking cool. Um, I showed the film to one of my teenagers once and they were just like, oh my God, this is just so fucking 80. <laughs> uh, it's like, you know, everyone's riding around on bikes with mullets and it's like, <laughs> excuse me, like this was the height of fashion at the time. How dare you? I know, like what, what girl didn't want to like dress like Star, you know, like that's just, she was so beautiful and you know, being an awkward, I was definitely an awkward teenager. It's like, God, I would love to be that cool and be around all these cute vampires and be... And live forever and, like, isn't it? It's just like, whoa. Um, and I just... And in, and looking at that film then later on, I became to realise how queer it is as well. And it just became even even better to me because um, I actually wrote a big piece on a, on a big... for a big... UK horror magazine who I don't write for anymore so I won't plug them <laughs> um <coughs> they wanted me to do like the I think it was like the 30th anniversary or something of the Lost Boys and a lot of my article was uh, celebrating how fucking gay that film is oh my that's fabulous <laughs> and I just thought I'm just I'm just gonna I'm just gonna go all out there because you've got Jason Patrick who's Michael who's like the main protagonist. Uh, Corey Haim is his little brother, and I love Corey Haim in that. I even love the Frog Brothers. Mike White from the projection booth was slagging them off recently, I think. <laughs> Why would you do that, Mike? We love you, but come uh, on, the Frog I think It probably wasn't him now. <laughs> but I know, I think it was him. And um, it's like he... So they've moved to a new town with their mum, Diane uh, Weist and he meets Kiefer Sutherland, David and first of all he's like interested in Star but then it's all about fucking David and it's all about this like weird like he's obsessed with David and someone I don't know who the hell it was put together this amazing montage of every time Kiefer Sutherland says Michael in that <laughs> film <laughs> Oh god! And also clips of the scene, um, which I love because obviously it's Joel Schumacher who made the gay Batman as well. Is <laughs> <laughs> okay. uh, when it when he's looking at the sax man. That's when he meets Star, isn't it? And they're on this like beach, and the oily sax man Tim Capello, whatever his name is, is there doing his thing, and he's kind of watching Star, but he's kind of watching the buff. Oh, the sax man is. Oh, well. <laughs> um, <laughs> I clear. I I need to rewatch Lost Boys right now. Seriously, watch that film and think of it as like a kind of by curious ode to vampirism. <laughs> oh my goodness! Because the the whole like relationship between Michael and David is just so kind of queer curious. There's, there's just even though obviously they don't get together and the interest is Star, they meet Star at the beginning, but then Star doesn't appear for ages again. Like watch it again, you'll notice it's all about those two guys and him getting into the gang and everything. 
And it's the way they look at each other. It's just fucking fabulous. <laughs> oh, God, I love that. I absolutely love that. Man, that's such a great movie. Whenever people, like, it's kind of popular to hate on Joel Schumacher now. And, I mean, yeah, the Batman films, you know, like, everybody's got some questionable stuff in their filmography. Schumacher's made some really good films, though, too. And I think Lost Boys is definitely one of them. Um, what's funny about the soundtrack is uh, back in the olden times of the internet where, um, I'm not saying I did this, but if somebody was illegally downloading music, <laughs> um, you know, songs, certain songs would get always like mislabeled and forever, if you typed in Cry Little Sister, it was attributed to Sisters of Mercy. <laughs> 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 Which I don't know how that happened. I love, I am a diehard Sisters of Mercy fan. If you've listened to Sisters of Mercy, no, you're not gonna come on. I mean, because I think this, um, oh god, who did the who did Cry Little Sister? I don't know, and I listened to that soundtrack load, like loads, like I still listen to it now. I'm trying to say, I want to say that this is definitely not the Sisters of Mercy. It is so not Sisters of Mercy. <laughs> It is very far from Sister Mercy. I want to say, like, the singers, I don't think it's Lou Graham from Porter, but it's somebody like that. Um, so just, yeah, funny. I'm not saying people legally download music. I'm just saying I might have known somebody who did that. <laughs> oh, it was Gerard <laughs> McMahon. I don't, I'm, who I'm not familiar I really love the Echo and the Bunnymen cover on that oh, one as well. The People Are Strange. It's beautiful. Oh, just, even at the time, I just kept listening to that on repeat, and I still love it now. You know, it's weird. I think today is um, either Jim Morrison's... Lou Graham does the one, the Lost in the Shadows one, which, again, I'm not going to sing, but I love that track. <laughs> I was about to try and sing that Fright Night song, because it's something like... Da -da -da -da, da -da -da it's like that it's not sexy it is not now can you imagine if they had had some Serge Gainsbourg with that oh man I'm sorry my mind just went to a different place um but uh but no Lost Boys is great and um I would love to see like somebody should do like a triple bill like at some theater house and and, and show a show near dark Fright Night and Lost Boys they totally should, because they, they totally go to, even though they're very tonally different, they just totally go together, I think. It's just this whole, it's just the whole experimentation that was going on at the time in the vampire film with, like, you know, in the 80s. And we touched on The Hunger. That was another one where you have this idea that... Uh, the main vampire Miriam in that, who's incredibly sexy, uh, grooms potential partners who stay with her for a certain amount of time. And then at the end of the block, I think, is it a hundred years? Then she kind of gets rid of them and she brings on a, a new, a new companion. Um, and it's a very dark, very sadistic film. And obviously David Bowie is like her companion at the start of the film. And then, and he starts to age. Um, but it's just so transgressive in terms of how it looks at vampires and sexuality. Because it's like just all about sexuality, basically. <laughs> the whole thing is about sexuality. And you have this vampire who's bisexual. She'll take a male companion and then she has a female companion. But it's all completely 
sexual and the idea is that she then goes on to seduce Susan Sarandon and there's like a bit of a lesbian thing there but I just think that's an incredibly potent film all of those films that we've mentioned they were doing things that you hadn't really seen before absolutely well and the hunger um really has like some imagery in it that um a lot of people i think have compared it to kind of like mtv at the time like music video imagery um where which i think some could mean as a slag i think there's a there's just a it was totally it was totally that though in a good way i think in the best way about yeah like the lost boys were kind of like the rock star vampires but it was the same for near dark it was same for the hunger as well i think it was the fit like we talked about uh, Count Yorga being, you know, reflecting that counterculture thing and making the vampire kind of swinging in a way, like bringing him into that world. Um, but it, the vampire was still distant from that world in a way. It was still like an older artifact. And with the newer films, I think it was the first time that we saw the coming together of like the pop music and the 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 subculture of the time and bringing them into the vampire film so the vampires then became like the pop well in the case of David Bowie they actually were the pop stars of the time but you saw a real meshing of that and like a real it was like MTV but I think that's a good thing because they really fucking resonated with the kids at the time they like told us why they were so successful well, and, you know, the emphasis on just having also, like, a really great visual style to marry with the story and with sort of the supernatural elements, um, especially with the hunger, because the hunger has, like, such a dreaminess um, about it. And sometimes it's almost like a nightmarish sort of dreaminess, but I love that. There's there's just almost like a, like a, a type of film or, or gauze kind of over things and um and the implementation of music yeah yeah and the, the music in it as well i mean the whole thing is just really beautiful it's something that we we saw in that era and then it kind of dropped out again i don't think we i mean queen of the damned maybe but i don't know <laughs> we don't count that let's, yeah it's cord. i mean come that. on how do you go from bajas and iggy pop to fucking Jonathan Davis. I say no. <laughs> I reject it. It's not a no. No, no, no. Great. No offense to anybody that loves corn, but you're... I do like corn, no! actually. But no, I do. I like popcorn. I don't know. I've I'm... seen them twice. Oh my God. I'm sorry. <laughs> don't hate me. <laughs> I don't hate you, but I see what you mean, though. No, because I just really don't include that film in great vampire films <laughs> no. put it that way no no um especially after interview with the vampire which we have to talk oh. about next because i think just as the follow-up the whole thing is the start as a rock star and i think no 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 it just never worked for me i know some people love that film but it just it just didn't work for me i don't think anything can hold a candle to Neil Jordan's adaptation of Anne Rice's book. Uh, I know we've spoken about this before, but being a, like an Anne Rice fan at the time, so fan of the books, 
remember when they announced that they were adapting it to film, I was really nervous about it because I just didn't see how something that big, because Anne Rice creates this whole universe. Obviously, there's a whole series of books and they... I'd say the first three are the best ones. <laughs> one, Agreed. <laughs> well, no, it's Queen of the Dam, the third one. No, the first two. The first? No, the Armand book's good as well. Was Queen of the Dam the third yes. one? I didn't really get on with that so much, but I like the Armand story. But the vampire start and interview the vampire were just, oh, so fucking good. And I didn't see how anyone could translate that to the to the screen. And somehow Neil Jordan just... He really brought it to life in a way that just became even better than the books. Even, And I was really scared because I know we've talked about Tom Cruise on this podcast <laughs> before. But it was kind of like a very A-list, like a uh, very A-list cast. So Brad Pitt, Christian Slater. I love Christian Slater. I do too. And Brad Pitt can be really good in certain things. But Tom Cruise, I was very, very nervous about. I know Anne Rice wanted Rutger Hauer. Oh my god! And, uh, oh, you want to talk yeah. about a hormonal awakening? Uh, yeah, imagine Rutger Hauer. <laughs> Holy shit! Um, but she did actually afterwards kind of concede that I think because Tom Cruise is such a fucking asshole anyway, he just really works <laughs> as a stat. <laughs> I think Rutger Hauer might have been too nice and too sympathetic in a way, like too likable. I don't know. Like you, you would. Whereas Tom. Cruise is just fucking amazing that film because the stat is such fucking shit oh and and yeah he's just so it kind of works so even Anne Rice conceded but I was scared and then I watched it twice in a row because I was just like oh my god this is just like you know and I know everyone's not gonna another film that kind of gets dissed because it's a Hollywood vampire film, we're not supposed to like those. But fuck that, it's brilliant. It's an absolutely brilliant film. Oh, it's I, it's it's a film that is just I. It's one you do watch again and again. I know I have because visually. It's sumptuous. It um, the cast is great. Like I, I actually, and I was like you. I went into it completely, completely dubious. Like just thoroughly. Like I was like, oh, I'll, I'll give it a chance. But I was just like horrified that Tom Cruise uh, was in it. Because when <laughs> I when I read the books, I always pictured um, Julian Sands as Lestat. Oh yeah, which is probably that's also a reflection of my teenage uh, hormones, though. Too, so keep that in mind. But uh, (laughs) but uh, but I was like really like yourself. I was like Tom Cruise nailed it. Like he was beautiful in it. He was um, he was so good. And um, and yeah, I mean they call the stat the brat prince for a reason. Like he does have that kind of just beautifully kind of dickish dickishness about him um of course Stephen ray's in it and i love Stephen ray and uh oh he's just so good in it i mean he, like my favorite is louis though brad pitt uh, he's just such a the little existential vampire everything is just so painful god he's so whiny <laughs> <laughs> I love him. He's so emo. Louis very emo. I totally fell in love in Brad, with Brad Pitt for that one film. Oh wow! And and I was just like, yeah. Oh man, that. Was... 
See, I my crush from that film was Stephen Ray. <laughs> but I'm I a thought, weirdo. I thought Antonio I Banderas was good as well as Armand, but he's not in it enough. Um, the only criticism I would have was Armand in the book is like has a bigger role, but I can, I can see why they cut that down. I think Neil Jordan, though, I mean, he made The Company of Wolves, which is one of my most favourite gothic fantasy films. Oh, same, and, yes. And and then Interview the Vampire again, and then later on Byzantium as well, which I fucking loved, and I really hoped was going to be the beginning of something like more vampire films, but that doesn't seem to have happened. And even though it is like this huge big budget thing, it's just so gorgeous, and it's just so... You know, it's the kind of film that Hammer always dreamed they would, would could have been, isn't it? It's so gothic, it's so period, the costumes are beautiful, the scenery is beautiful, the actors are beautiful, <laughs> it's just like... And I watch it like at least once a year, and I'm one of those annoying people, if I ever watch it with anyone who hasn't seen it, like, I know almost every line out of it. I'm like one of those. <laughs> I'm like, wait, wait for this bit. <laughs> watch it, watch it. But I think consistently, I know it's like cool to say, oh, well, I like this really kind of obscure vampire film from 1964 and I'm going to be kind of, you know, everyone's kind of hip. And as much as I love the Jess Franco, like Interview of the Vampire is probably one of the vampire films I've seen the most. Oh. And... There, yeah, there's no it's... shame in that because it's a great it's a great movie and uh even the soundtrack like i think the soundtrack's amazing like that's um you know and i think it's actually of the 90s vampire films i think it's an ace because i think it hits all of the notes as opposed to say like you could compare it in terms of budget and exposure but also literary adaptations was uh the coppola dracula um but that one wasn't you know like that one had a great fucking soundtrack though i'll say that the composer i i have a love hate relationship with a Coppola. same one. gary oldman in that is just fucking intense he's wonderful um and there's and it looks beautiful and there's scenes in that film i just want to drown in because they just look so beautiful and i love gary oldman like i would have gone off with him in his little glasses and his top hat he's just so like, <gasps> Um, but then you have Keanu Reeves' <laughs> fucking Jonathan Harker, and it's just like... Dude! And I actually got into almost row with someone about that recently. Oh, he's not that bad. He's fucking terrible. Oh, he... I'm sorry. That <laughs> film... That film sinks is weighted down. Because I'm with you. Like, the things I love about that film, I am ride or die with. Because, yes, yeah, the visuals, the soundtrack... Ex with the exception of the Annie Lennox song, which I'm not a fan of. I don't hate it. I just don't love it. Uh, and half of the cast are perfect. Like, Gary Oldman, perfect. Yeah, Richard E. Grant, even though it's a you know, smaller part. Richard E. Grant's amazing. Um, so I believe it's Sophie Ward who plays Lucy. Like, she's great. She's the And she is fucking amazing. She's Lucy oh, is just, oh, her character is just brilliant. The scenes with her are just, oh, but amazing. But Winona Ryder... Oh. Oh, okay. See, <laughs> her and Keanu Reeves should not have been cast. And, and I like Keanu Reeves. I like both of them in other films. And he seems like a very lovely man in real life. But he literally looks like he's about to say dude in that film. Like I know, he's been in fucking Ted. I love Keanu Reeves. He's like, but everyone's... He seems to have been sainted recently. And this is no diss to Keanu Reeves. Like, been in Ted was my total vibe when that came out. And I watched that film... 
more than any human possibly should. <laughs> and he's just great. And in, in my own private Idaho, he's just... And I love that film with Udo. Yes! <laughs> was, you know, the I was thinking that. With the lamp. And he's but singing so, Dear Adler, which is so great. It's so great. You know, that scene where... Udo Kier sleeps with Keanu Reeves and River Phoenix. It's just one of the best things. I ever. hated them so much out of jealousy. I was like, <laughs> that should be me in that bed, <laughs> not you. <laughs> but he's, he, let's face it, he's not, you know, of a. I think Coppola was trying to do a big Shakespearean kind of in terms of weight <laughs> adaptation of Dracula. And he really should have got someone who wasn't trying probably focusing on their stilted english accent so much that they look like a piece of wood i'm just not sure what was going like the way he speaks everything it's just like what what is this like why are you in this film and i'm sure people will lynch me because he's like the untouchable saint now like lately he's just started dating a woman of his own age and they're like oh my god look at him he's just so wonderful and I feel so sorry for that poor woman. No kidding. Like, <laughs> yeah, she's not like she's, everybody's acting like she probably. It's like she's hardly a crone. Yeah. <laughs> but meanwhile, they're, you know, she probably feels like Methuselah right now because the way people are treating <laughs> her. It's, I know. It's like leave her alone. But it is like Saint Keanu. So like you mentioned, like, I thought he was shit as Jonathan Harker, <laughs> and it's just like the internet bleeds. <laughs> oh, you can't say that about Keanu. He also ruined something's got to give as well, bless him. With Diane Keaton and Jack Nicholson, uh, this funny sort of romantic comedy, and he is in it as the younger love interest for Diane Keaton. And again, he's playing this young doctor. He's supposed to be charismatic, and he comes out and he talks like he's reading a teleprompter, and it's like <laughs> <laughs> I feel terrible now. I liked him in the first Matrix film. No. I haven't seen John Wick. I know if we're... He's, he's good in the John Wicks and the Matrixes. Yeah. And the Bill and Ted's. I think, I think both Reeves and Ryder are... There are films they're, they're really great in and that I love. Oh, and Point Break. Point Break's great. Is, they, but they're both yeah. very limited. And the... Oh, God. Winona Ryder was not good in this. And... No. She, she was just oh. mm, hit and miss with Winona Ryder. She kind of gets on my tits. I love Edward Scissorhands. I mean, it's she was one. Well, she was everywhere though in the nineties, wasn't she? Oh, she was. She was like literally everywhere, and then she just kind of disappeared. She got, I think, because of Scissorhands, she got pigeonholed into that kind of weirdo girl. Uh, thing so she did like Girl Interrupted as well which I didn't like oh god that um, film and she, uh, but she's great in Heathers though she's great in she's Heathers absolutely great in Heathers but I don't know there was just something off about her and so like it's a, it's a film that I can marvel in its majestic qualities and Gary Oldman but I just want every, and Lucy as well but I just want everyone else to get off the fucking screen <laughs> Well, and Anthony Hopkins just there. There is not one ounce of scene unchewed. Jack, hurry! I've much to tell you. Stand <laughs> away, Mr. Morris. Do not fail here tonight. We are dealing with forces beyond all human experience and enormous power. So guard her well. Otherwise, your precious Lucy will become a bitch of the devil, <laughs> a horn of darkness. <laughs> Well, you're a sick old buzzard. 
with this penthouse. <laughs> and I'm kind of torn on it, though, because part of me kind of loves it, but the other part of me just thinks, like, you know, I don't know if this is, like, fully working. Though he does get points for that whole, like, she is the devil's concubine! Like, the- <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, but, but, yeah, I mean, you compare that to Interview, and Interview, you know, you don't have anybody sinking that film like everybody is great and fits their character to a t like brad pitt is louis like for all of us who've read the books like his he nails it and um yeah it's just a great film i think the reason i think the reason interview works so is because again it's an american gothic film and it starts in new orleans and i've never been there but i've always had this like with the americana this weird fetish about that place I'm just fascinated with it. And it starts with uh, that whole Creole thing and New Orleans and, you know, Brad Pitt's Southern as well. And so the characters feel quite natural because they're they're coming from the new world to the old world. And I really love that aspect. They're like going to Europe and then they're traveling around trying to find others like them in the old world. And so you don't have these American actors who, bless them, can't do... <laughs> the English accents and so everything feels perfectly natural and it works it's just perfect oh that's I think that's an excellent point and um you know the thing that's like it the the one thing that makes me a little bit sad is I really wish there would have been an adaptation of Vampire Lestat with Neil Jordan and that cast oh totally I'd, I'd love to see because you know that book as well and I, I hope he hasn't given up making vampire films because I love Byzantium. I don't know if you've seen that one. I need to see it. It's on my list. Oh, my God. It's, it's um apart from having a little bit of ropey CGI, but it's about these two uh, female vampires who were kind of, they've been around for centuries and it's set in the modern day. Uh, and they're being hunted down by these male vampires because they're not supposed to exist. And it seems to open up, like, you feel like there's going to be some opening up for further sequels or whatever. There's, like, all this mythology and stuff that underpins it. And I felt like, you know, that was going to be the first of a couple, but it just doesn't seem to have gone anywhere. But I was really blown away, and I was sceptical about that film because I thought he probably couldn't top Interview the Vampire. Like, it doesn't top it, but it's as good as, I'd say apart from the little CGI bits, which I didn't like. Top form Jordan. I'd love to see him do more. I think he's great in Gothic. He just really gets it. Oh, gosh, yes. Well, and Vampire Lestat's my personal favourite of the ride. Like, I love that book. And um... Yeah, because you kind of find out why he's like he is, and he's not as nasty in that book because you find out how he was made and you know, about his past and everything. It's just such a great book. I'd love to see someone explore that. Absolutely. But but not, but don't, no Stuart Townsend, please. <laughs> <laughs> that's all, that's all, that's all I ask. <laughs> and Udo Kier. So, so, I mean, the 90s, after Interview the Vampire, I kind of, um, I kind of, sort of spaced out on the vampire film i know you have your favorite favorite one from the 90s oh so. i absolutely do as i'm, I'm literally like <laughs> rubbing my hands in excitement he was brought across in 1228 
preyed on humans for their blood. Now he wants to be mortal again. To repay society for his sins. Um, it was a Canadian TV show called Forever Night. Um, and it's actually originally kind of loosely based on a TV movie from the 80s called Nick Knight, which had Rick Springfield as the, the character. And I did see that as a little kid because my mother... Well, she's still in love with Rick Springfield, and, but she was definitely in love with him in the 80s. But uh, but Forever Night, the show, has Durant uh, Went Davies, and I hope I'm probably mispronouncing his name, but he's great and, uh, as Nick Knight. And basically, you know, he's a centuries-old vampire who is trying to kind of find a redemption for for his past and uh and you have like his maker lacroix played by the great nigel bennett um at, pop up and lacroix is where it's at for me lacroix is you know nigel bennett's a great actor and he's got just that again that presence he's charismatic he's a very definitely like impish kind of a devilish type character but you really love him and the show was just really smart you had a lot of great characters and background characters and you'd see like flashbacks into like the history um joss whedon definitely i think took a lot um took a lot of inspiration and i'm putting inspiration quotation marks i'm trying not to be too snarky about it uh for angel but forever night is... i was gonna mention angel yes. but... <laughs> and, I mean, in, fair, and in fairness i mean everything comes from something else i mean because you do have like the character of natalie who's the the coroner uh but she's also working with nick to try and figure out a way through science to make him human again which is obviously very much a throwback to dark shadows where you had the character of Julia trying to help Barnabas, uh, Barnabas Collins, be become mortal again. But uh, but Dark Shadows rules, and so does Forever Night. Angel was a lot more spotty, in my opinion. I know they're devoted fans. Nobody come for I me. loved, I am one of those devoted oh. fans. I, I didn't like Buffy. I don't know why. I kind of used to zoom in and out and watch bits of it. But Angel, I was fucking obsessed with it. I had one of those Nokia phones that you could program a ringtone in by typing in little numbers, and I had the angel thing. Oh, my God, that's like amazing. This kind of midi boop, 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 boop. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I spent, like, half a day programming in. That's how sad I was. Oh, no, I love that. No, angel, for me... I did actually go back recently, because I have them on Amazon Prime. I used to have them all on... Uh, the DVD sets, which I spent a fucking fortune importing from Australia. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's all coming out now. Um, but I hadn't seen it for years. I mean, I was in my 20s when that came out, and my kids were really young. I was, like, stuck in all the time. So, you know, Angel came on TV, and I was like, oh, what's this? Because it was kind of a bit like a noir, but it had this whole vampire thing, and he had the whole Byronic. I can't believe we've got how long into this episode and we haven't mentioned Lord Byron. But he had the, like, Byronic characteristics as well. And he was, like, deep and he was moody. And I was, like, kind of, you know, this is amazing. Although that David Branis, he, he looks so fucking square and straight in anything else. I know. <laughs> it's only in that, that, that program that he's kind of sexy. But I saw that other thing that he did. Was it Bones? And I was just like, I can't believe this is the same person. Like, where's my angel? It must have been the leather jacket or something. But I watched it, started watching it back last year just because it was on Prime and it was something to watch. 
It's actually quite good. It's actually, you know, some of the storylines are amazing. I loved Cordelia. Oh, my God. She was brilliant. Yes. See, I I loved the first few seasons of it, and I felt like Cordelia got kind of gypped, which is why I can't, like, Well, get... yeah, she kind of got, when she got, I don't want to say that, actually, it's a big spoiler. <laughs> I don't wanna, but, but I know she fell out with the producers because she got pregnant, and she was kind of, Voiced out, which I I don't like. When she left, it wasn't as good. Like that last season with the whole Wolfman Heart thing was fucking. That was that was utter shite. <laughs> really, <laughs> but you know, you know what the best, my favorite thing, and what I'd say the best thing if we're talking Wolfman Heart though is you remember that episode where um, they basically unleashed Drusilla and um yeah oh god see now come on and i Donna love drusilla. And drusilla drusilla was fucking amazing she is my queen i love her <laughs> i love when she's like your wife was very sweet she her blood tasted of elderberry <laughs> <laughs> she's fucking amazing oh my god i know I, I have some sauce but spike i love come spike. on it had its moments I, I, I i was threatening last year to write a whole kind of thing about like re-celebrating angel um, do it i never got around to you it sh- but yeah no it was actually really good i think it was the time when TV kind of took over from film. And so you had like really interesting things started to happen in TV where they weren't they weren't necessarily happening in film. It kind of went a bit shitty after that whole um after that whole scream thing. Gonna <laughs> 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 become the woman who hates Wes Craven's scream. But there was definitely like a shift away from the more decadent things. Everything became very self-aware and cynical for a while. And uh, and so, you know, I think Angel and the program you talked about, I've never seen. I, I know we've talked about this before and I have to watch it because it just totally sounds like the the something i'd be totally into and i don't think we got that over here i don't think it even screened over here oh it probably didn't forever night had a real um like it was syndicated i think initially it was like on a major network late at night in the states but then it got syndicated so it 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 had kind of excuse me like a spotty run even here at times yeah no i don't think we ever got it i don't remember i probably would have seen it because i was a total like glued to the tv Oh, I love so, it's so good. And a uh, little trivia for for all of us '90s cult films, because I'm pretty sure the UK got this show. D- did you guys get Lex? That weird science science fiction TV show. We did, but I never watched it. Uh, okay. <laughs> Nigel, <laughs> Nigel Bennett, it's, it's he was a recurring character on that. Um, ah. But. Uh, but yes, it's so good. And um, but I think before we get out of the nineties, though, we have to mention your yes. I know what you're going to say. Heather wrote a very rude story <laughs> that she sent me <laughs> <laughs> about this particular vampire. Oh my god! So one of my top, <laughs> one of my top. <laughs> Sorry, I'm embarrassing I'm like you. Like it's a brilliant. Girl over here. <laughs> it's a great story. Thank though. you. That's. Uh... It's the uh, Radu, or his full name is Radu Vladislav from the Subspecies series uh, that Full Moon Pictures put out in the early '90s, and Radu is one word to sum him up: epic. Like he, oh my god! Like 
Because, yeah, he's not conventionally attractive. He's kind of almost probably more on the Nosferatu side of being a vampire. And in the first film, like, you have this whole dichotomy between him and his half-brother, Stefan, who's, like, classically good-looking. But Stefan, like, yeah, he just wears these silly sweaters. And he's just very... <laughs> he's kind of wimpy, you know? Although, like, talk, talking of, like, influencing Angel, I'm not saying that this influenced Joss Whedon, but the but the Radu face, his like monstrous face that he has, is kind of like the angel face when he goes angry, when he goes vampire. Oh my god, I didn't even think about that. But that's a good point. Isn't it? yeah. It's like this kind of very grotesque, almost like mask face. And then in Angel, obviously you have Angel like he looks wonderful and then he turns into a vampire and he has this really kind of monstrous, overpronounced face but i i'm not saying charles band influenced josh <laughs> but i love that statement i want to live but in there's a world some si- do you not think there's some similarity there i could see that um because that... in, in the face of like radu what his face is like all the time like angel just appears like that occasionally oh my gosh yes radu is so like like horrible beautiful like i love him so much <laughs> and he's and he has such great like swagger and you know like when he says like tonight there will be a bloodbath it's just like you <laughs> fucking feel it you're like yes yes radu and um and those especially the first three movies i think are so i've only ever seen the first one i've never seen any of the sequels oh i highly like, oh my god <laughs> shame I, on me i Please, please, please see two and three, uh, which were pretty much made back to back. And there's like some gorgeous, gorgeous imagery in those films. And, you know, and you have the castle like it was filmed um, in Eastern Europe. Yeah, they're shot in Romania, aren't they? Which is like none of the other films we've been talking about were. And the ones that try and that have got Eastern Europe in them just kind of try and recreate that which never works out a lot of the time (laughs) but this is like you've got the authenticness and the actor that plays Radu Anders Hove um who um who's tremendous and his his filmography is fascinating because him actually quite like Udo Kier our beloved Udo Kier he's also worked Lars von Trier um but he also was on General Hospital like which is a, a big soap opera over here in the states and uh but his Radu is just it's just oh my god just so charismatic at times sympathetic at times a complete monster and just he's amazing and I love Radu I would be his fledgling in a minute in a hot minute <laughs> Uh, no, no apologies. Like he's he's a you know he's a real man. <laughs> it gets kind of slim pickings when we get to the millennium. Uh, I will put in an honorary mention for Eric Northman from True Blood, though. I, I you know I still need to see True Blood. I'm ashamed to say I haven't. I have the first season. Don't ever. It's disrespectful of this may sound. Don't ever read the books. Um, <laughs> I really. <laughs> I really loved the first, I think it was three series, and then it kind of shit the bed, and I never actually saw the last part of it. But the first three were just fucking incredible, just so violent. I mean, it's got really graphic sex in it. Everyone is absolutely beautiful. It's got this whole Southern Gothic thing going on. Like the main vampire, Bill, is like, come from this, he was turned in the Civil War. It's got a bit of a beguiled thing going on. Oh, wow. Um, 
But Eric Northman, who is paid by Alexander Skarsgård, and he is like the owner of this S&M vampire club. Because the whole premise of the thing is that vampires live out in the open and true blood is this synthetic blood that they can drink so they no longer have to feed off humans. And of course, you know, a lot of them can exist that way. But then you've got Eric and his crew who kind of like the old way of drinking. Um, and so he's got this kind of sexy curb going and he's just and he's a total sadist and he's just oh, so total shout out. After seeing two of the series, though, I stupidly got the first, and I feel really disrespectful because obviously all the concepts in True Blood come from, is it Charlene Harris's original books? And those are amazing concepts. But I read the fucking book and, and, um, <laughs> or I tried to read the book. And I was just so disappointed in that it was more like, um, reading twilight or 50 shades of gray you know that level of literature almost like teeny literature you know whereas the show's very adult it's got loads of graphic sex those are saved and that is all totally from the show so i was like really disappointed when i got to but and it's like a tiny little book like the first one um so yeah you should watch it because i think you would love it I got really into it, but then it kind of... And the, and it's got all these other mythological creatures like shapeshifters and werewolves and the vampires are the main ones. But yeah, it's totally cool. Oh my gosh. Doesn't... Isn't Rucker Hauer in that show as a fairy? I feel like I read that somewhere, which is amazing. I, do you know, I, was, I didn't want to say that, but it was when we found out Sookie was a fairy, that's when I left. <laughs> but... <laughs> That was your moment of being done. You're like, I'm but I had no idea Rutger Hauer could be in it as a fairy. Like, what? What the fuck? I'd probably go back and watch the rest of it. Oh, if that is true. Why? Why weren't there more movies that utilize like Rutger Hauer as a vampire? Because sadly, the only one that did was the original Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Oh no! Do you know what I am? Um... I I actually liked, I think it was from 2004, the remake of Salem's Law. And he is the vampire in that. Oh, and it's God, got you're right. Lowe. You are totally and, right. I'm and s- in loads of people kind of go, oh, it's not, well, no, it's not Toby Hooper's miniseries. Um, but it's actually really good, I think. I really enjoyed it. I can't believe I forgot it. Because I actually, I have seen that, but it's been... Oh, my God. Yeah, it kind of came out. I'm trying to think. 2003, 2004, it kind of came out with no fanfare. I actually Um, reviewed it. I was... was... And nobody kind of really cares about it much. But I I thought it was interesting. I really liked it. But it kind of gets dissed because, like, oh, well, it's not the original. No, it's not, but nothing's... But it's just an adaptation of a book. It's just a different adaptation. That's how I take it. I, I really enjoyed it. I, I don't know if it's a film or a miniseries again. Was it a two-parter or was it actually a film? I want to say... I it being long. I think it was originally like a TV... I want to say it was originally a TV thing and then released on I'm DVD. I'm thinking it was, in two, it was in two parts, I'm thinking. Yeah. God, I am obviously... Rest- I can't believe I forgot that Brecker was but Barlow. He, is, he is like... Yeah, he's super sexy as Barlow. And... 
whereas you know the Toby Hooper one has the more Nosferatu <laughs> like mute Nosferatu <laughs> character yeah I mean no offense to the late Reggie Nalder but uh but you know it's... but you get like a, an actual kind of scary sinister charismatic Barlow in mm. that one and I think I think if he hadn't been in it, it wouldn't have been as good. But it just, it just, I just thought it was great. That's why I watched it. Because it was like, oh, Rutger Hauer's in it. Oh, I watched that. I really enjoyed it. Actually, you know, something that hits me, because Howard would also go on to play Van Helsing in Argento Dracula. But. Oh, God. Which we won't (laughs) mention that film to me. (laughs) But, um,. But, like, you notice that Reggie Nalder actually played Van Helsing in Dracula Sucks, which was uh, an adult version of the film. Now, Nalder doesn't get naked or anything. <laughs> like, he's a, he's in a non-sex role in that film. But you have Jamie Gillis playing Dracula, <laughs> um, and, uh, which, of course, Jamie's a very seductive and scary. <laughs> I know, we're talking about sexy Draculas, and we don't mention Jamie Gillis. <laughs> well, that's why I get him in there. I'm like, oh, come on, we can't. it comes in at the end. Wait, yeah, save um, the best for last, you know. <laughs> I was going to say, I can't think of any, like, there have been odd, interesting vampire films, but vampires is true icons, I we seem to have lost that now oh. and i really hope it's going to come back in some big way because like the vampire can continually reinvent so i don't know why we're not seeing you know a resurrection because there would be like you know resurrection every decade or so and it's seems to have stalled or seem to have gone into tv with things like true blood there there were some films like german film we are the night i really liked which is about, that's about female vampires, though, this kind of tribe of lesbian vampires who are incredibly decadent. They're, like, really libertine. I really, really enjoyed that one. I really enjoyed Not a Sexy Vampire, but Let the Right One In. But I don't know. It's like, I don't know what's going on there. (laughs) It's like, we need more gothic. Not just BBC dramas. We need some proper gothic... Somebody's probably going to send in a huge list of all these vampire films now. <laughs> well, I mean, heard of to be in the last five years. I but... know. Well, I mean, to be honest, if we if we went super comprehensive on this, this would be a series and not an episode. So anybody listening, keep that in mind. We're we're trying to give you a proper <laughs> overview. Now, you... so. Oh, well, I was going to yeah. say the heartbreaking thing about two thousands uh, vampire films of two thousands is. One dream of mine came true, but in the worst possible way. Because I was like Peter Murphy as the vampire, as in my little goth heart, it would be like the old, like, oh my God, the ultimate, right? Well, it happens, but it's a fucking cameo in one of the Twilight movies. And I'm like, you gotta be (laughs) shitting me. I would rather him be in Queen of the Damned. But I've never seen a Twilight movie. I've only seen clips, and it's those are <laughs> I, I, Jillian Venters, who's the head of uh, Gothic Charm School, and I love her. She actually has the best theory. Is her theory is that the vampires in the Twilight universe are deeply confused fairies, <laughs> and not vampires. <laughs> and I've I'm. I can agree with that. That's my take. But yeah, it's like we finally get Peter Murphy as a vampire, and it's that, and it's in that. Ugh. It's kind of right, though, I think. I think now, thinking about it, you know, I've said the vampires seem to have died out in the 2000s. And I can see now it all stopped with fucking Twilight. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yep, thanks. <laughs> thanks Perhaps a lot they want to they put the sparkles on Peter Murphy. Oh. You know, it killed the vampires. It's maybe that was what happened. <laughs> oh my god. Well, and it's you know, it's so it's so weird because it, it also what I've what I've gleaned, and again in fairness, yeah, I haven't sat down and watched all the films or read the books either. I've just seen bits and pieces and I've read articles about them. But you know, in other vampire films where you have the vampire that's kind of preying on a younger female, like, you know, we're talking about with Fright Night, because, I mean, if you think about it on paper, this is a, a much older male preying on teenagers, and that's very creepy. But it's supposed to be creepy in Fright Night, you know, because Jerry Dandridge is sexy, but he's also very sinister and dangerous. So it's, you know, you have those layers. In Twilight... Edward is centuries old too, and he's preying on a teenage girl. He's fucking hanging out in a high school, which, which is what <laughs> predators do, and not cool well, vampire the vampire, predators. Grave for the Vampire takes place in a college, though, but somehow Michael fucking Pataki can get away with that because he's Michael Pataki. Pataki can get away with anything, but um, I mean, Edward from Twilight. <laughs> the only is not... thing I did, the only thing I did see of Twilight, which I really enjoyed. Was those honest trailers guy? Have you seen oh, that version God. of Twilight? Yes. I love that. That was trailers. amazing. <laughs> <laughs> almost made me want to watch the film, like almost, but no. Well, it, it's <laughs> oh my goodness! It's just you know, and it's it's like anything. Because think about it this way: that whole universe is what basically inspired Fifty Shades of Grey. Uh, it's just it gets worse, doesn't it? Oh. The more you go down the line, it just. It just gets worse. <laughs> it's, it's, it's all like that. Um, I don't know if you saw that Michael Keaton movie, Multiplicity, which is a really, really funny comedy. But he's like the scientist who keeps cloning himself, but each successive clone gets really stupid. Like they just get more and more stupid. And I feel like that's kind of what happened. You know, it's like, but Twilight started off already being kind of just bad and shitty. Like it's already kind of like the fifth clone, right? And then by the time you get Fifty Shades of Grey, it's like the one that's got like a weird eye and shit. <laughs> like it's just like so bad. But <laughs> um, it is sad. I think you know, that's what I'd love. I'd love to see a real, true resurrection of Gothic in the next... Because we're 2020 now. You know, this next decade. I'd love to see Gothic come back. But properly. Like, properly reinstated. I think we need Gothic. There's so much that Gothic can... You know, in subtext and theme, Gothic can be used to examine power relations... It can be used to talk about sexuality. It can be used to talk about addiction or domestic violence or just all these different things. And I think there's so much scope in, the, you know, especially with our political climate. I read about someone who was like trying to find the elixir of life by... I can't remember drinking blood or something, some billionaire. Oh, And yeah. I thought it's exactly like something out of Thirst, where you have the aristocracy farming the poor from the 70s. And I just don't understand why we're not using vampire narratives to explore this whole idea of the fact that we have a world that's, you know, Western world that's governed by these rich fuckers who are literally sucking the marrow out of people's bones you know there's so much scope in there to address that in vampire films but we just aren't making them for some reason for 
Twilight. <laughs> there is one redemption. Um, and great, it's it's a comedy, but the um, I don't know if you've seen the TV version of What We Do in the Shadows. But oh, we should have mentioned that. Actually, I'm saying they're all shit. I loved what we did. Oh, what we do in the shadows. The film, the, I love the film. The TV show is equally great. And oh, I need to see the TV oh. show, but oh, yeah, I was werewolves, not swearwolves. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, oh my god, the TV show is it's got one of I think one of my newest role models, the, the female vampire of the household, Nadia. Is, is she's amazing, but you have Matt Barry as a very out proud bisexual decadent vampire and if that i mean come on that's it's like i wrote that like who else would want matt barry as a decadent bisexual vampire <laughs> me <laughs> i need to say i can't believe i forgot about that but i guess because i'm thinking of terms of sexy vampires and serious stuff but yeah that has been one of the more promising films from the last few years i absolutely loved it and the fact that they have like a kind of vampire from every generation as well and it's just so well done oh it's so it's good just so much fun i i cannot recommend that up and i love because you do you have kind of like the this the perverted sort of vampire like that's kind of like vlad and you have the dandy and then you have uh my favorite of the film which is deacon played by johnny uh brew who's a great new zealand actor and uh who does a little sexy vampire dance in the movie <laughs> <laughs> it's okay but i i agree like with with we need more decadence and we need more proper gothic in cinema and less and libertines we need the libertine like where are the byron where are the byronic vampires where have they gone yes it, it can't really be that twilight trampled them all out and now we have a whole generation of people who don't understand what a vampire film is I mean, maybe it's... <laughs> I don't know. But if they can do it for television, they can do it for fucking film. Yes, absolutely. And, uh, and less CGI. Like Yeah, no CGI vampires. Well, you don't need CGI in vampire films, do you? Even though Byzantium has that one scene. It's just like, Neil, why? <laughs> <laughs> but the rest of it is amazing. Oh my goodness, yes. So I think that just brings us to the end then on this rather festive occasion. I know. Merry Merry Christmas and Happy Yule, everybody. Because, <laughs> uh, oh my goodness. Well, I hope um, I hope everybody's enjoyed listening to this and, uh, and maybe, hopefully, we've inspired you to check out some films maybe you haven't seen or rewatch some that you have. And some people are going to probably be really shocked that I like corn and tree bread and angel. Listen, I, I wrote a fanfic about Radu, so I really have no room to judge at the, all. The, the, the revelation episode. Absolutely. Yeah, this is, we're, we're just letting it all, just letting it all hang out tonight. Oh my goodness. Well, uh, Thank you guys so much for listening. We're going to have um, some more episodes coming your way. And just uh, stay tuned to our social media and, of course, uh, to Diabolik's website. 